Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 6. As we celebrate six years of the show, we are exploring a very important theme, publication. What does publication mean for you as a writer? What are the choices available? And how does that impact both you and your book? We'll be talking with multiple writers on their publication experience this season, helping you get closer to publication as well. My guest this week is Mary-Laura Philpott. She has been on the show before, as those of you who loved her previous book, the national bestseller, I Miss You When I Blink, will remember. She has a new memoir, Bomb Shelter, coming this month. And her writing has been featured frequently by the New York Times and also appears in the Washington Post, The Atlantic, Paris Review Daily, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, Real Simple, and other publications. Across her work... Mary-Laura Philpott examines the overlap of the absurd and the profound in life, literature, and culture. It's always a joy to talk to Mary-Laura, so I knew I had to have her on regardless. It was luck that her wonderful memoir was coming out at exactly the right time. And what we explore in this conversation is something very important with publication, particularly for memoirists. How do you share such vulnerable experiences? How do you share the deeper reaches of yourself and tolerate the fact that it's going to be in other people's hands? We look at strategies for doing this, knowing that her book was going to readers when she wrote this newer book versus the previous book, which was different. It's different once you've published it as a book and we look at why that is. And finally, the experience of exploring and working on a book that is a memoir that includes members of your family who you're also in lockdown with while you're writing it. And how does that impact the writing process? Many of us worry that writing stories, even that are our own, that include the other people in our lives, will necessarily create tension. But Mary Laura's story in this conversation is really one of how loving this process can be. And I found that incredibly inspiring. I know you will too. I am delighted to once again introduce Mary Laura Philpott. Hey, Mary Laura. So Hello. I've been so, I've been like counting the minutes till I got to talk to you. <laughs> I'm so glad from, from all the way across all these time zones. I know the time zones are absurd. And yeah. this is the week we're recording in that horrible week where we're one hour off of what they usually are. Mm-hmm. I can't do the math. It no, I can't either. Mind. It hurts. It hurts my brain every time. <laughs> But we've made it work even so, which is great. Yes. Because you, several years ago, wrote a memoir, 
I miss you mm-hmm. when I blink, which mm-hmm. you described as it might have been you told me this, but I might have also read it that when you saw copies of it, it felt like one of your internal organs was lying out on the table where that happened. Uh, that's so funny. I, I vividly remember that. Yes. The first time I saw a real copy of it, it was like walking in and seeing my liver on the ground or, you know, my lungs sitting on a table, just like, how is that out there? <laughs> so that happened. And then everybody read it and everybody loved it and everybody talked about it. And this was not so traumatizing so that you did it again. And (laughs) and even so, this book is even more like this might be two organs rather than just one. You really went in there. Yeah. This one, as my editor says, you went big. This one is uh, even more personal, a little, a little heavier, a little deeper. It's, it's got, you know, I keep saying my whole soul is in this book and it really is. It does help to have gone through this before though. Like when I, when I opened the box the other day with the, I got a few little finished copies sent to my house. I did not feel quite so much like, oh no, my guts are outside my body. Practice helps with that. Okay. That's good to hear. Cause I wondered knowing the whole process of this is going to be out there. People are going to ask me weird questions. They're going to show up and have all kinds of things to say. I would love to hear about all that. But knowing all of that to sit down and still write about a child going through a medical scare that continues to be sort of an ongoing concern and and many other topics that you did. I'm just wondering, how did you sit down and do that knowing that other people were going to see it? Yeah, it's so bomb shelter is one of those um, kind of slice of life memoirs where you get like you get like a two year chunk of my life. But then there are memories from the past and thoughts about the future all kind of woven into it. And as you mentioned, one of the major ongoing threads is my worry about my children, specifically my teenage son, who at the beginning of this book, you read about um, sort of the the first time he had a seizure at home and he was diagnosed with epilepsy. And it was a very scary, uncertain time in our lives that remains uncertain and sometimes scary. I think what enabled me to write about it and not feel like, oh no, I'm, I, this is, we're so exposed when I write about this is it helped that I had done. I miss you when I blink already. And I felt a sense of trust in my readers. And I know that sounds a little crazy. Like, I don't know all my readers. There are thousands well, of people with you, out there. I, wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I don't know them all. And I'm guessing I could be wrong. I have a sense that there may be readers who come to this book who haven't read the book before. So it doesn't even make sense that I would go, oh, I know them now because they read the first book and I can trust them. But I do have a sense that, that what I write is being received in the spirit in which I intended that people aren't coming to this going, Ooh, let's see, you know, let's take this lady down. You know, they're, they're there to witness the story with me and witness some things that I went through and, and go through this reading experience where I tell a story about being human and maybe make some observations about being human themselves. So I had a little more faith in the process and in readers having been through it. Um, But that said, you know, I was still very, very careful throughout this book with boundaries. There's nothing in here that I was afraid to include. And there's nothing in here that I feel like violates any sort of privacy or boundaries with anyone else in my life. 
in the instances where my story overlaps with someone else's, for example, in, in telling the story of my son's seizure, um, you know, he, he had approval over all of that. And, and, you know, and he's old enough now he's actually an adult, so he's old enough to give meaningful consent. I feel like, um, and I really only drew in the threads of other people's stories that were absolutely essential for me to tell this story that's anchored in my perspective. So I felt, I felt pretty comfortable in that going through because it was something I checked in with kind of again and again. Yeah. I, I wondered about that too, because your first book is really very much about your experience, your thought process. Um, <laughs> there's one chapter that I remember I read it on a plane and by some weird situation, I, they screwed up the seating assignments. And so I was in a middle seat in one of those rows that are five people wide. And my husband was directly behind me in the same middle seat. (laughs) So we were sort of adjacent, but not next to each other. And when I read the chapter to the type A creative or the type A person in distress, I finished it and I passed it up over my head (laughs) and handed it to him and said, you got to read this right now because it will explain oh, I love everything. That. I, that's <laughs> hysterical. I I can picture that so vividly. Like they're reaching over yeah, and just like, you're, just go yeah. in, going in. Right. And you're right. I mean, I miss you. And I blink was very much focused on um, experiences that didn't overlap much with other people. It really took place mostly in my head. Bomb shelter actually does as well in that you know, if I put it to the once upon a time test, it is once upon a time, there was a woman who, et cetera, et cetera. It is all anchored in here with me. It's my experience as a human and a mother and a warrior and an optimist. Um, but there are stories I have to tell within that larger story that overlap with other people. But I would, but I, you know, I really do use that once upon a time test to make sure that at no point, there's no scene where I shift into once upon a time, there was a boy who, or once upon a time, there was a man who I'm never telling you what someone else thinks, what someone else feels. This is entirely my emotional journey through this sort of worrisome time. Yes. And I love that test. I think that'll be extremely helpful for people to apply. I'm wondering about the conversation when you first had the idea, because it's a collection, it's a memoir in essays. It's not Mm -hmm. just one piece. There are many pieces. So I wonder if there's a modular element to what you, you put in, although they do all, I feel like they all have to be there. You can't get through without one of them, but how did you introduce the idea that you were going to do this to the people who were maybe going to be overlapped with, you know, notably your family? Yeah, my family, my immediate family in my own household and also my parents appear in the book. Um, they knew what I was doing as I was writing. I mean, for one thing, my my immediate family in this house, my husband, my son, my daughter, all had been saying, even before I started writing this book, you're going to write about this, right? Like, you know, and my son is so funny. He's, I protect his privacy so much. I don't use his name in the book. You know, you know nothing about him other than what you need to know for me to tell this story as a mom. But um so I'm talking about him in very guarded terms, but he's, re- he's really cute and he's really sweet. And he kept saying, you know, you can use my name if you want to. You, I mean, you can use my picture. I, people might think I'm cute. They might like to see my picture. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were, they, everyone in, in my family was very forthcoming and very open to the idea. And some even more so than others, like you should put the thing in about this and you should put the thing in about this. I probably used more restraint than any of the rest of them in holding back things about them. Um, just because I am so I'm concerned about their privacy, but then also just 
as a writer and as a story creator in protecting the integrity of this story, I really wanted it to be, this is the story of an anxious optimist put to the test when her loved ones are threatened. And that's got to keep the focus on me. If I wander off into, oh, here's a little backstory about so-and-so, it, the, the story falls apart. You know, it, it, it doesn't have that same structural integrity. So it was important to me on a lot of levels. Did you start with that clarity or is that clarity that you found through the writing process? I started with it and then I just checked in with it repeatedly because it is, you know how easy it is when you're just talking to somebody about one story to just veer into something else. I mean, you and I do it. Like before we got on the Zoom, we were like, oh, let's talk about, look at the beautiful room you're in. Oh, let's talk about remodeling our homes. You know, you naturally conversationally wander into other territory. And as I write, I can I can sense myself doing that sometimes. Like, I'm going to tell you this story. Oh, this reminds me. I should throw in this. This is interesting. And as I continually, you know, brought myself back to that once upon a time test, I could, I could see very clearly where I was starting to veer off and needed to just, you know, cut off that branch. We're not going there. We're sticking here. It's a handy little test. It is a handy test. And at the same time, you do give us the illusion. I know it's an illusion. It feels like you just had a little device in your brain that lets us track your thoughts and jump around in this way. And I know that that, that's not what happened and it took lots and lots of hours of work, but that's not how it feels reading it. I'm so glad. I know because you do have a memory as a child being in the beach in -hmm. the beginning and, and then how that pulls you into other thoughts and moments when you lie under a Christmas tree and, and are pulled back to memories. And I am just curious about what happened between when you had the idea and when the essay was finished, you know, the pruning of the little branches and how they could go everywhere and figuring out which ones fit together and which ones were diversions. Was there anything in addition to the once upon a time test happening in there? I'm sure there was a lot. There, well, so, I mean, just for a little kind of behind the scenes writing process stuff, I love, I think you and I have talked about this before. Do you use Scrivener? Yes. Okay. I love Scrivener. Same. You know, I love it. And the yeah. reason I love it is because you can have one main open document in front of you, but then off to the side, you have the little family tree of other documents. Oh, and yeah. so that, just that visual to me of I'm writing this story, but over here, I can see the other stories it helps me kind of remember where am I in context of the whole thing? You know, I'm talking about this, but this is going to be appearing up here in the timeline. And then something else is going to be down here. So I've got to plant a seed here that I'm going to pick up down here. That is huge. Like that, that it's so much more than just a a word processing tool or whatever. To me, the visual, the visuals of Scrivener are so helpful. So that every day was helpful to me. Um, I generally will keep two or three essays in progress at a time so that when I sit down in the morning, one of those two or three is going to be kind of calling to me or I'm going to be more excited about. So I can go to that one. And if I get up the next day and that one's not calling to me, but another one is, I can go to that one. So keeping things, a few things bubbling at once is helpful. Um, This with this book more so than with I Miss You When I Blink, I knew I had a sense of knowing where I was going. I knew where I was going to begin. I knew where I wanted to land. I had a really good idea of which stories from my life I wanted to pull and weave in. Um, And that may be why in the end, Bomb Shelter feels so much more like 
a memoir than an essay collection. I think I miss you when I blink a sort of a memoir and essays, but it feels like a collection. Whereas this one, although it is built out of essays, because that's what I know how to do. Um, I think it feels more like a memoir. I thought of it that way. And I think in the end, um, in terms of like the little codes that publishers put on it, I don't know what those are called. Bisac codes, some kind of code. Bomb Shelter is coded as a memoir. And I'm assuming uh-huh. it's coded as an essay collection. So like technically, according to their categories that nobody sees, they're different animals. Do you feel satisfied with those categorizations? I do. I mean, I, th- I feel like people spend a lot of unnecessary time trying to pin down genre and category of books. Like, you know, is this a thriller or is it a mystery or is it just fiction? You know, it's a story. I I tend to, you know, I follow a good story, no matter what you have labeled it. And I feel like a lot of readers do. So I'm less concerned with, do we call it a memoir in essays or do we call it essays or do we call it a memoir? It's all on a spectrum and it's a, it's a true story is what it is. So come read a true story made up of small, true stories call it whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, that's not my job to figure that out. But this right, is the right. sort of thing that I feel like a critical voice can come into the head and say, what are you doing? Right, right. Are, are you, you doing it right? Are you doing it right? Are you following the rules of fill in the blank? Yeah, because yeah. as somebody who wrote the chapter to the type A person in distress, <laughs> I just wonder what <laughs> rules you had because you have the once upon a time rule, but were there rules that came up that were not as helpful or that were a challenge to deal with? I mean, there's always that little voice in the head that says, who cares? Mm. You know, like I get that this is an important story to you, but why would anyone else want to read it? That is mostly a very unhelpful voice. But if you process it properly, it can be a little bit helpful because it's a reminder that you do have to find the part in your own story that makes the reading experience one that's relevant to someone else's story. So as I'm writing, whatever I'm writing, I do have to bear in mind, if you're going to read it, you need to find some universal thread in there that helps you latch onto it and care about it and feel like it's somehow relevant to your own mind or experiences or life. That's the only way that who cares question is helpful. Yeah. If you look at it like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finding that part in it. I'm also interested because it's not just in book form that you have published essays. You've published essays alone in magazines and newspapers. And I'm wondering how that experience has informed or assisted your process in publishing books, however we define them. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, honestly, it's it's made me, in many cases, I think a better writer. I've worked with some really good editors. Some of the editors that I've worked with at, at newspapers and magazines have taught me things that have that I've then taken with me in all my writing. You know, I, I take that little advice they gave me and put it in my head and I, I keep their voice with me. So I've learned some things about writing that I think I've taken with me. Um. It also just keeps me practicing because I think if I start to write something and I go, oh no, this doesn't fit in a book. What am I going to do with it? Knowing that there's somewhere I could take it and publish it is nice. Although kind of a bummer, there are fewer and fewer places you can publish one at a time personal essays these days. So many magazines and newspapers have cut back 
their personal nonfiction columns. And I'm very bummed about that, but um, I'm hoping that trend reverses at some point. Yeah, exactly. It's because it's so important. I remember reading your piece, which I think was in the Atlantic about missing seeing people's faces. Yeah. And I felt so validated by that story. And I realized I actually had a similar experience to when you described it, which was, I had also been to physical therapy with somebody whose face I never saw. And it was so (laughs) wonderful. I still haven't. Isn't that weird? The whole relationships that that existed within the pandemic with people whose half their faces, we we didn't even know what they looked like. Yeah. And you just like imagined what it looks like. It's like a, it's like, um, Schrodinger's face. (laughs) It could be anything as long as you can't see any face in there until you see it. I worked with, uh, Julie Beck at the Atlantic on that piece. And I worked with her again recently. She actually worked with me to adapt a chapter from bomb shelter. Actually the chapter that in the book is called bomb shelter because it's about my yes. dad and the secret nuclear bunker he worked in when I was a baby. Um, but I worked with Julie Beck again at the Atlantic on that. And that's been a wonderful experience. I've been delighted that, that they do still run some personal essays because so many places don't. I know. I wonder <laughs> I think it's just money because I'm like, there's never been a time that we need these stories more. And it's always heartbreaking yeah. to see them sacrificed, but it's, it's just gotta be space and money. Right. I think it's that. I think also, unfortunately, the way people read has changed. People read on their phones and they have very fractured attention spans. And if you show somebody a little phone screen with 10 different headlines on it, and nine of the headlines are things like, I swallowed a glass Christmas tree ornament. What happened next? And 10 ways (laughs) not to catch on fire and things that seem like a big thrill and a quick payoff or a few numbered things that I can take in very quickly. And then the 10th headline is something like the true story of how I learned that blah, blah, blah. And it's a, and it's a more nuanced, slow tale about real life. It's not this screaming listicle people go to the listicles first, which is a bummer. It's not great, but they do. And because they do, I think these publications are following where the clicks are and where advertisements get seen. And they're maybe letting go of things that aren't as quote unquote popular because people aren't clicking on them first. But I, I just, I don't know. I feel like people are still reading them. I mean, I do. I think they are. I, I love this them. makes me want to start a movement, basically. Like <laughs> leave positive comments on long form essays and yeah, places that don't, you know, don't click those listicles. <laughs> you never learn anything from them anyway. It's always they such don't. a letdown. They're garbage. They are garbage. It's most like of ways the time. not to catch on fire. Don't pour gasoline on yourself. It's like I could have right. told you that myself. Right. That's the equivalent. It's a bummer. So were you writing Bomb Shelter during the pandemic or were you revising? Okay. So I'm really curious. So in the midst, I'm just like, I've painted myself and I wanted to confirm this, this context about you writing this book, you're kind of in a bomb shelter. So that feels appropriate given the, Mm -hmm. the world. 
Plus, you're you're writing a story that overlaps with family. There's incredible concern about people's safety. I feel like that was like perfect conditions. Plus, the people whose faces you're seeing are the people who are present in there. So it was almost like you had a not fun circumstances, but an excellent writing retreat to write exactly this book. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have gotten written. I don't know why I'm using the passive voice. It wouldn't have gotten written. I would not have been able to write <laughs> by it someone. <laughs> by someone um, within the time frame I did had the pandemic not happened. I mean, because at the time the pandemic started, I Miss You When I Blink was about to come out in paperback. And so it was, I was about to begin like paperback promotion and my mind was all on that. But then that all kind of got, I mean, the paperback did come out, but any sort of promotional activities didn't happen because we were all locked down and staying at home. And at that point I had written, I had written a good bit of bomb shelter, but there was still more to write and being stuck at home every day, literally nowhere else to go or anything else to do, but sit down and do my work. It's the ultimate, like put your butt in the chair situation. I did get more written, I think, faster than I would have otherwise. I was there, you know, still in the pandemic to revise it because of course the pandemic went far longer than is still going far longer than anybody thought it would. Um, you know, there's no, there's no upside to a pandemic. Pandemics are horrible, but I did because of the circumstances of being at home, I did get this book finished probably earlier than I would have otherwise. Well, I think your philosophy that you shared, which I also loved, I'm trying not to spoiler everything in the book, but this was just a <laughs> comment of, you know, are we all going to die? Yes. Should we find something wondrous in the moments that we live? Also, yes. And I, yeah, I really related to that, that that was your outlook on life. And it feels like writing a book in the midst of something horrible is also a way to embrace that. I have some very vivid memories um, of writing this book from the early pandemic. It was summertime, you know, spring and summer, and we have a screen porch on the back of our house. And I remember one day, kind of the way we were set up was one kid was upstairs in one room and one kid was at the other side of the house. And then my husband was in like a third corner of the house, everyone on their Zooms for school and work. And then I would just go wherever I could get quiet to work and write. So a lot of times I would go out on that screen porch. And I remember the the week that I was working on, I mean, this was many weeks, but there was one specific week where I was doing research for the essay chapter in Bomb Shelter, where I, I talk about being in second grade and, and hearing the story about a teenage girl who was kidnapped in my neighborhood and kind of how I processed that as, as a child and how I think about that now as a parent and what a strange experience that was. And I went, I had to go back and research what it felt like to be in the early eighties in that stranger danger time. So sitting on my screen porch, watching, this is horrible, watching news footage of the Adam Walsh disappearance and, and then watching pieces of the TV movie that was made about his, his kidnapping after the fact. And it was the, I just had this one really weird, heavy week where I was immersed in this awful, sad story from, you know, 40 years ago. It was just really weird. And then in, within that same chapter, I write about um, after school specials, those weird melodramatic TV oh specials that would God. come on in the afternoons. Yes. And they, each one had like a different catastrophic theme. So I was watching pieces of those. It's the weirdest time. It was just such a specific, strange writing process. 
there's so much about that time that's so odd. I mean, being the same age and having similar experiences. Like I remember like all of those, like 9,000 Sweet Valley High books. And they all seem to also address those after school specials. Totally. There's one that was like all night long that was like, don't sleep. For some reason, my college roommate kept referring to the title of that book as don't go home with John, which basically (laughs) summed up the the content of it. But there was all of this like incredible warning. There was so much warning going on in that time of everything. Of uh, and yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Like in that book series and, and TV and everything, it was like you could be in a car crash, you could be kidnapped, you could get addicted to this drug, you could get addicted to that drug. You know, to be a kid, you could get botulism. I remember right. that being a thing. Like, yes, you're going to go trick or treating, and people will put razor oh, yeah, blades put in your razor apples. blades. Yes, to be a kid in that age when that was sort of the zeitgeist. This catastrophic warning system going off all the time. It was weird. <laughs> I mean, it's no it wonder we're it, you know, terrified to do anything. My bones. Right, right. So I grew up marinating in that, as did you. And then I became an adult and a parent and a person in the world that we live in now. And here I am looking around going, oh my gosh, are there catastrophes everywhere again? Do I need to be afraid? How do I, how yeah, do I walk around? Do I walk? Right. Really? Do I walk around scared? Do I walk around feeling tough? Do I, you know, do I feel like things are going to be great? Do I feel like they're not? And I have that within me anyway. I, ha- I very much have that sort of um, contrast of everything's going to be okay. Oh my God, we could all die any minute. That optimism and that anxiety are constantly warring it out in my head. So yeah, the eighties are deep within me. <laughs> oh yeah. They, you can't, you can't get out of them unscathed. True. Particularly because all of the food that we ate then is probably still lurking inside of our cells. Oh my God. The Twinkies. <laughs> the Twinkies, the easy cheese, the, I mean, that can't be digestible really. No. And so I'm interested in, you, you mentioned earlier about trusting your readers. So another aspect of publication is the fact that you're not just living in your own screen porch or your own house or your own computer with your story. It goes out to other people. And so I'm wondering if, has that borne out in terms of your reactions when you've had direct interactions with readers and how did that feel to have them show up with their reactions to your story? I've been very lucky. I'm knocking on all the wood around me right now because um, there is a tendency out there in the world for people to react to things they have not consumed yet. You know, for people to tweet about a book they haven't even read. Ah, I'm so mad that this book is about this or I, you know, dismiss about, oh, I heard it's about this and they haven't even read it. That is- It's got a turtle on the cover. I don't know. Right. I hate people who love turtles. You know, people, people do tend to respond to things they have not yet stopped to absorb. I have been wonderfully lucky in that I haven't had much of that kind of interaction. Most of the time, if a reader reaches out to me or tags me in something or whatever, they have read, they've taken the time to read and process and the thoughts they're bringing to it and the reactions they're bringing to my writing 
are informed and, and well thought out and whether they like it or they don't like it, or they have a question about it, they've actually read it. And so when I say I trust readers, I do, I feel very lucky that that has been the case. I hope it, it remains the case um, because it's not always the case out there. No, it's true. And I think that, and it isn't always the case. I want to come up with some you know, snappy reason for this. Like you've trusted us with your feelings. So we're trusting you and being kind in return. But yet there are so many examples out there where that is not true at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. It's really strange, but I know I've been very lucky people. Um, and this is already happening with bomb shelter, of course, because though, even though at the moment you and I are speaking, it has not been published yet. There are early copies out there with booksellers and, and reviewers. And so I've had some bloggers and some booksellers actually get in touch with me about it. And it's really, it's one of the most delightfully surprising parts of the publication process to hear from somebody who says, oh, this is the part that meant so much to me. And I'm always so tickled and surprised to hear the different parts that are meaningful to people. There's not like one part of, of this book or the last book that like, that's the part everybody talks about. People have different little pieces that they get attached to it. I love that. I know it's, there was, I was reading something recently and of course I don't have it in front of me. So now I'm not going to remember who said it, which is terrible, but it's somebody saying that when, oh, it's awful. I'm going to have to look it up and I'll put it in the show notes, but that the, the book is only half there. I would argue that it's more than half there because it's a lot, a lot more work to write a book than to read it. I would say it's 75% there, but then there is the reader's reaction that comes to it and makes it something entirely different because all of your life experience went into the story, but all of their life experience is coming and meeting it. Yes. 100%. I mean, there, I was just talking with somebody else about this the other day. Um, I mean, that's true in terms of the book itself. Like everyone's experience with one book is is different person by person. But also I was talking to somebody about the, um, I call it the me character in this book. Like the, the pieces of my life that I have put on the page. When you read them, what your brain does, same thing my brain does when I read a book, you string them all together and you loop them up and you go, here is the whole, I have the whole of this person but you don't, you have the pieces I gave you. So that me character in your mind is not exactly the same as me, the actual living person. It's something your brain made out of the pieces I put on the page and then whatever else you brought to it. You know, your own life experiences, assumptions you might make, other people you might know, you've kind of patched all the holes and gaps with things you had in your head. So you've got this me character who's not exactly the same as me and is also not exactly the same as the me character in the mind of someone else who read the book. So you're exactly right. We all kind of, we all have our own experience with every book and every character. So there could be millions of Mary Laura's running around (laughs) in the minds of of humanity. It's a weird thought. It's so odd. It's also like the thing on a different scale when you read a book and you picture the character very clearly. And then then if they make a film out of it and if the casting choice is different than the casting choice you would have made, it is such a weird cognitive dissonance. It is. It's like, no, he did not have red hair. That's not right. Yeah, it's it's His face is supposed to be pointier, you know? Right, right. (laughs) Those moments. And I guess I want to know how I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question. I'm just like, oh, I'm so interested. 
And then the problem is when I get really interested in things, I become less articulate, which is a really poor, <laughs> poor quality to have. Um, but that did that help you as you were writing? Because I think that one of the particular challenges of writing memoir is feeling like, oh, I, there is no buffer between me and the world if I'm sharing something so personal. But thinking yourself as the me character and the, the parts of me I'm choosing to share seems like an excellent strategy Yes, to be able to tolerate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, you know, I, the author, am creating a story the main character is made out of pieces of me, but she's a character in this book. One of the things I did, uh, and again, being in lockdown because of the pandemic allowed me to do this because I had so much time. Um, as I was writing Bomb Shelter, I would write in the mornings because that's when my brain is freshest and I can you know, summon words and think clearly. And then in the afternoon, when I was still here, still had time, but didn't really have the brain to write. I would read and I, I put myself, I called it afternoon story school. And every afternoon I would oh, read the something best. yeah, that I kind of assigned myself on the syllabus of how to be a better writer and a better storyteller, really just kind of thinking I might absorb a few tips that could help me in writing Bomb Shelter. But I wasn't just reading other memoirs. In fact, I read very few other memoirs. I was reading thrillers. I was reading romance. I was reading, um, there's a book. Is it on my desk? I don't know where it went. It's called the science of story. I think by Will uh, store, I'll send it to you so you can put no, it. In I think notes. I, I think I know that one. Yeah. You probably know it. Read um, it. Mm -hmm. I read all sorts of things because I wanted to bring to this storytelling experience the best practices from all kinds of different storytelling. And when, when you think of it that way, like almost like this is a TV show and I'm the showrunner and this character on the page is one of the actors or one of the characters, that buffer does help a lot because I, I remember that I am creating a story out of these scenes and out of, you know, the different order that I put things in, I'm making a story and that version of me is in it, but they're not the same. So important. Now I'm dying to have the entire list of what you read. I'm like, I want it. I, I want all kept, of it. I should have kept better track of it. Oh my God. Because those of you who have been listening to the show and have heard Mary Laura on before know that I have never disliked a book that she has recommended to me. Like not once. Oh, yay. So it's like, I'll, I'll, and in fact, it's become like a shorthand that I'll use with my husband. I'm like, oh, I'm getting this book. I'm like, Mary Laura said it was good. He's like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. That's the, that's the bookseller in me. She'll never die. Yeah. You need like a stamp <laughs> on there. That's like my stamp. So like Mary Laura liked it because it is, it's, it isn't from one particular genre. You're as omnivorous a reader as I am. And I do find this so important that it isn't about reading stuff like the stuff I want to do in the same genre with the same approach, because again, yeah. that just ends up being fuel for the critic. But right. I always think of it as like medicinal reading or, or prescriptive reading. And it isn't just the same. It's like, okay, I have a struggle with my book. I want scenes to open in an interesting way. Who do I know who opens scenes in interesting exactly. ways? Let's read them, for example. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted, you know, I knew that I wanted this book to 
engage with people's minds in a certain way. You know, I wanted to grab them at the beginning and then make them wonder and then sort of modulate suspense a little bit. And you think, well, how there can there be suspense in a memoir? But there can be, and it's a story and you're creating a story. It's suspense is an ingredient you put in a story. Um, I wanted there to be fluctuations in mood. You know, if I were to chart out the, I call it the emotional plot of that me character. Ooh. I wanted you to be able to see like something happens. What will she do? She tries all these things. Oh no, that doesn't work. Okay. She tries this. So that works a little, Oh, there's a twist. You know, I really wanted it to work the way a story works. So I, you know, I, I just remembered one of the things I read. Um, have you read any of Catherine Center's novels? No, I think I have one near me. I'm you can't see, but my bookshelves are right next to me at arm's reach, but they're all a mess because I've been grabbing stuff out of them. So there used to be That's one of what books I do, right yeah. there and I can't, oh wait, hold on. I can see one. No, I can't. It's too far. <laughs> I can't reach it. Anyway, she, <laughs> like my arms aren't that long. Um, like gadget arms. She writes rom-coms, romantic comedies, yep. feel good books. Everyone gets together in the end. Love, you know, there's always some trope, like, I think I hate him, but then I like him. That's not what I write at all. But I know from reading her books that she is very efficient about introducing characters, getting you up to date on who's who, setting it up so that you have certain expectations of what's going to happen, and then playing with your expectations and holding your attention the whole way through. Even though I'm writing a completely different kind of book, I want to be able to do all those things. So it's worth studying. Absolutely. Well, I think this is also like, there is this sense of... I want to write what I enjoy reading, but it doesn't have to be the same part of the bookstore where the book is shelved. It can be, there are qualities I love about books and I can see these, like the people I get along with, like the things I enjoy doing. There are qualities that go through all of these and you can pull all of those together in what you're writing. Even if you're writing fantasy and you can't stop reading, you know, true crime. Right. Right. Like I want to learn how to write good dialogue because there's dialogue in my memoir. Well, I'm going to go study the writers I know who put great dialogue in their fiction and learn what I can learn from them. Exactly. Oh, I kind of want to initiate afternoon story time. I really like (laughs) reading in the afternoon as well because the brain is sort of oatmeal for a chunk of that time. And that does seem like the most, that and like Junkie admin are the best uses yeah. of those time. But yeah. who wants to do junkie admin when you can right. read? Who wants to go through your email inbox? I felt like that would be kind of a good passive, kind of passive learning time of the day. I've got to do something in those hours. Here we are trapped in the house in the pandemic. I can't make any noise because everybody's doing Zoom school in the house. So, you know, what what can I do? I can read with a pencil in my hand and underline and take notes. Oh yeah, that's the hot tip you gave me before. If you feel guilty about reading during the day, everyone take Marlar's tip and hold a pencil and then you won't feel bad anymore. And then it's work. Yes. I have another tip to add to that. Actually, if you have a nervous rescue animal pet who will curl up next to you very tentatively while you're reading, but not as easily at other times of day, then you're doing a service. You are. In addition to to a therapeutic veterinary service. Exactly. And who doesn't want to do that? So I have that, I got the pencil, I got the book, and then I have the nervous feral kitten 
who is now four years old, but still. I love it. That is a, that is the way that one can stay still while reading. (laughs) What are you reading now? Or what have you read recently that you love? So many fun things. So everybody read Bomb Shelter, but also whatever she says you should read too. Um, I just finished Marrying the Ketchups by Jennifer Close. Oh yeah. It comes out very soon. It's it's definitely a spring book. It might be out by the time people hear this. Um, it's delightful. Just a good family, just a snapshot of a family, an extended family with adult cousins and siblings and people who love each other, but also drive each other crazy. I love a good, just book about a family. She's so good. Um, Emma Straub's new one, This Time Tomorrow. Mm. It's delightful. If you love a good time travel flick, you will love this book. Excellent. It's good fun. Um, Oh my gosh, so many. There's one coming out this summer that I was just thinking about. I I blurbed it actually. It's called The Mutual Friend by Carter Bays. Have you heard about this? That's a good title. It it is a good title. So he was one of the co-creators of the TV show, How I Met Your Mother. Ah, okay. So this is his first novel, but not his first storytelling experience, obviously. Right. And it, this book very much has kind of a How I Met Your Mother vibe, like ensemble story, young people in the city. But then it has this sort of deeper thing going on. It has an unusual narrator. It Like, it's a big, long book, and it held my attention the whole way. And at the beginning, it held my attention just because I thought it was fun. And then as I got toward the end, I was like, having really deep thoughts prompted by this book. And I love that. So yeah, those are some good ones. I love it. Amazing. So I recommend that everyone check your book out and feel excited about reading beyond your genre, whatever you're writing. And if you're a memoir, a memoirist, then try trusting your readers, but also know that the world is it's tricky. So I think hold yourself as a character as you're writing a memoir and that may help. Yes, indeed. The so world my final is question. I love that oh, understatement. World, yeah. The world is real <laughs> the tricky. The world is tricky. It's tricky. So my, my final question to you is, have you seen Frank yet this spring? No, I'm always ready to see him far before he's ready to come out. Like it it has started (laughs) getting a little warm here and I'm like, come on turtle, it's time. But I think the earliest I have ever seen him has been May and it's usually Uh, more like June. So I can't wait. I can't can't wait to show him the book. I hope he's okay. I hope he's out there. I I can't wait to see a picture of him with the book. That's what I'm waiting for is like, I hope we get to do that. Seeing Frank in like a mirror where they're... (laughs) You know, the Frank book and the the book are next to each other. It'll be great. I hope we get to do that. I can't wait. Thank you so, so much. It's been a joy as always. It, It has. Thank you for having me, Caroline. Always. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.